Lord God, as we have heard uh, you speak today, as we've just heard about the event that changed the universe forever, we ask that we would have your heart, that you'd help us to see the how and the why of, of what your purposes are for us, and that we might be amazed and captivated by the amazingness of what Jesus has done, but not only that, by who he is. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, over, the, the, over six weeks, we as a church are spending some time looking deeply into what we call um, the five purposes God has for us as his people. As a church, we want to be biblically driven, making sure that all that we do comes from God's word to us uh, and that we understand what his word is saying to us and think about the ways we do things, not just to do them because something might work, but to do them because, well, that's what God wants us to be doing. Um, and so we kind of summarize what the Bible says for us and what we should be doing in our purposes into, into five kind of general areas. I'm not saying the Bible says that these are the five things we need to be doing. There's this kind of clear thing in, in Scripture. No, no, no. But we've kind of taken what Scripture says and, and put them into five different categories. Categories that someone else made up. It wasn't me. No, it was out of a book called A Purpose Driven Church, which I think has about one great chapter in it and the rest pretty average, but that's just my opinion. Um, but really what it does is it says we as a church, we as humans need to be thinking through not just what to do, but what God's purpose for us is. Why are we here? What does he want us to be um, doing with our time, with our relationship with him, and how do we act in his world? And so we've kind of summarized those things into these five M's, we call them. There's a picture on the screen, or it might have been there for a while, um, that kind of shows you what they are. It's magnification, uh, mission, membership, maturity, and ministry. Um, we use these five words. You get to know them a bit more. Um, but that's the way we structure our staff. We don't kind of won't have congregational pastors. We'll have people at church overseeing one or more of these purposes, and then teams underneath those seeing these purposes come about under God. So, what are they briefly? I'll kind of outline them for a second. Magnification we looked at last week was glorifying God in all that we do and loving and delighting in Him, recognizing who He is and being like, "You're amazing." <laughs> Our mission we're going to look at this week is proclaiming the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ as missionaries saved and sent by Jesus. Membership is loving and belonging to the Auckland EV community. It's being a part of a church, a church that's called family, a church that wants to love and care for each other when people go through sickness, when, when there are great joys that celebrate together, that wants people to belong um, Minister, sorry, maturity, growing as disciples in our love and knowledge of God to be more like Jesus. We're going to be maturing as Christians, growing more like our Savior. Um, ministry is identifying, equipping, and unleashing people to serve Jesus' kingdom with humility, passion, and eternal effectiveness. So they're kind of five areas that we see that summarize what our purposes are as Christians. And underneath that, we've got this thing we call ministry support. And that's to support the purposes of what God has given us to do. To see all those five things go ahead well. To see, in the end, people captivated by Jesus, grounded in the gospel and growing in maturity and number. Well, last week we saw that one of those purposes as Christians, the, re the reason we exist, is to magnify God. Uh, like a telescope does to an, a massive, amazing planet. It brings it closer uh, and shows how amazing it is to the world around us. So we are to be to God. We can't make him greater, but we can show his greatness to a world who views him as such a small being. That's magnification. 
Um, but this week, we kind of want to zoom in on the idea of what is mission? What does God want us to be doing with, with the world around us? And how does he want us to be thinking about glorifying him? We want to see just how vital the plans and purposes of God are. So we're going to look at a verse that's, that's pretty familiar for many. Um, for many, you're kind of like, yeah, I've heard this before. For others, it might be quite new. It might be the, the first time you've heard it. But in this verse, we're going to see today, you spend a lot of time going through this, the purposes of God for us and his desire and heart for the world around us to come to know his son. So let's have a look again at uh, Matthew 28. I'm going to read from verse 18 to 20. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we get this window into the heart of God the Son. He's just died on the cross for humanity. He's just risen again. In this very passage, the women have have gone to the tomb and it's kind of empty. And there's this whole context leading up to this verse of fear. Context of fear going on. The women, they come to the tomb, the stones rolled away. There's angels there. They're afraid. And whenever you see angels throughout Scripture, people generally respond with fear. I don't think it's kind of like a, oh, hey, let's have a cup of tea type thing. You're an angel. No worries. Let's chat. People are freaked out. It's not normal. You're like, I haven't seen any angels. You're like, it's not normal. It's kind of like this extraordinary thing happening. But as you kind of look, it's not the angels they seem afraid of. It's that Jesus' body is missing. And you have a look in uh, verse 5 of Matthew 28. Listen to the angel's response. But the angel told the woman, don't be afraid. Because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's been resurrected, just as he said. See, their fear wasn't just for the angel. It was related to the death of the Messiah, their friend, the one who said he'd be the ruler of the world. You can imagine them. Is this a hoax? Is the body gone? What's going on here? Was this a dream? Like, like... But the angels don't provide any extra special information. They just point back to what Jesus said. He's been resurrected, just as he said. The women run, joyful from kind of seeing this, and afraid. They're running kind of from the tomb. Um, The angels have said, go and tell the the apostles, the disciples about what's happened. They're running away and they bump into this guy. This guy's like, good morning, (laughs) it's Jesus. What does he say? Don't be afraid. The guards and the chief priests in the next little scene in this section, they're afraid that the body has gone missing. And so they concoct a lie. Jesus' body was stolen. They they kind of spread that lie because they're afraid of what will happen. If this actually happened, that Jesus did rise from the dead, we lose our our authority. We lose. This is, is, we can't have this. As you keep looking at each instance throughout this chapter, fear seems to be the controlling emotion, the controlling thing that's going on for these people. And it's not just any fear, but fear of the truth about Jesus. A fear I think many of us experience. Is Jesus really who he claims to be? Can I base my life on the claims of this book? What will people think if I tell them I believe in Jesus? I'm considering Jesus. Fear of the loss of control of your life. 
handing the reins over to someone else? Fear of what it means for my life. If this really happened, life isn't about me anymore. Fear of telling others. The same emotions that are going through all the people in this chapter. It hits us exactly where we are. And then in this last little section we'll be spending most of our time in, the 11 disciples meet Jesus face to face. Uh, Judas is gone. He's betrayed Jesus. He's not there. Um, His closest friends are there. And they see him, Jesus, the one who'd just been nailed to a cross two days earlier. The one who, like, what would you be thinking? Is is this, he's dead. Like, he's dead. But they see him. Have a look at verse 18. And hear the content of this news, this message, this gospel. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It wasn't some voice bellowed from the clouds. It was a man, flesh and blood, standing before 11 apostles, 11 disciples, and those with them, the women, Mary, and just a man standing there with holes in his hands and feet. Within arm's reach of these 11 people was the creator and sustainer of the universe. He came near. All authority has been given to me. If that's true, they're amazing words. They were standing in the presence of greatness. Have, have you ever been in the presence of someone powerful, someone great, and you're like, whoa, this is kind of, you know, amazing. I've been close to some rock stars and I'm very powerful. Um, but you're like, oh, I saw so-and-so. You know? and, and there's this kind of, whoa, this is, this, is, this is exciting, this is amazing. But on this day, their friend Jesus helped these men and women put their fear into perspective and recognize the authority of the one who was in their presence at that moment. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, in the sky, on the land. All authority. Peter, James, John, Mary, others, you're standing here afraid. Afraid of of what might happen. Afraid of the ramifications of your life. Afraid for who I said I was and what would happen in the future. Afraid of taking this message out. Afraid of what it would mean for you. Afraid it's all too much that you just can't handle it. All authority has been given to me. What Jesus says here is the antidote to fear. It's the antidote to everything that's just gone on beforehand. The fear of the missing body and what's going on. The fear of the chief priests going, oh, we've got to cover this up. (laughs) They have no authority. Jesus is the authority. The fear as they run into Jesus and they kind of see him and like, is this really him? The fear of the the 11 and all those around and what will happen next. The antidote to fear is standing within arm's reach and explaining who he is. For his identity is the antidote. The content of the news he's about to tell them is the gospel. It's the good news about who Jesus is. It's that message that we saw passed along out the front here of what Jesus had done and that he'd now risen from the dead and that he'd now been given the position of all authority. 
Those words are so familiar to me because I know that verse so well. So I kind of wanted to give you an idea of what that means. He has authority over Satan, over all demons, over angels, over good and evil. Jesus has been given all authority. He has authority over the natural universe, over stars, over galaxies, over planets, over meteorites and asteroids, authority over weather systems, whether it's wind, rain, lightning, thunder, cyclone. He's got authority over all their effects, tidal waves, floods, fires, authority over every single molecule and atom in the universe. He is the boss of, he is in control of, he has authority over. Authority over all the plants and the animals, from the smallest bacteria to the largest whale, from the most harmless of flies to the most ferocious lion. Jesus speaks and it does what he says. Authority over all the parts and functions of of, of the human body, every heartbeat that beats right now, every breath that's being taken, every thought going on in every single person's head, he has authority over. He has authority over all nations and governments, the prime minister, presidents, kings, terrorists. He has all authority over armies and weapons and bombs, over crime, over violence. He is over it all, over all industry and business and finance, over entertainment and pleasure and leisure and media and over our families and our neighborhoods and and over our cultures over education and research and and, and science, over every soul on the face of this planet, over everyone who has ever lived or whoever will live. All authority has been given to me. You ever met anyone like that? If that is true, that's amazing. One of my lecturers when I was at Bible college grew up in Northern Ireland. There's a fair bit of political unrest happening in Northern Ireland uh, in the 70s when he was a teenager there. He was a bit of a lad, a bit of a rebellious guy. Um, Occasionally did a few things that were kind of a bit out there. And so one time he decided to go graffiti a building. He's there kind of spraying the can, writing graffiti on this building. When the police turn up, the police say to him, do you know what you were doing? He's like... Um, graffitiing a building. They said, we just got a phone call from the IRA. And this is what they said. If you don't stop this kid from graffitiing our building, we will. So he was spray painting an IRA building. (laughs) He didn't know it, but he was there. And the police came because they got a call from the IRA to say, do you not fix this kid before we do? There are times in life when we face authorities that we don't think are much. We don't really care about the building. But we don't realize what's going on. Sometimes we can be like clueless kids, spray painting the world, forgetting who Jesus is, forgetting who God is. We arrogantly put our mark on on the world around us. We make our opinions about the world or about, about Jesus. We say, I like to think of Jesus as, or I think he's like this, or I think the world's about that totally oblivious to the fact that the one we are defaming is the most powerful person on the planet. He makes the IRA look like a chihuahua. 
in some sense, for these women and for the followers of Jesus and for the chief priests, the right response to a resurrected Jesus, to a man who said he would die and and come back three days later, is fear. Even death has no hold on him. There is not, nor would there ever be anyone more powerful than the man standing in front of these 11 disciples at that moment. There is not, nor will there ever be anyone more powerful than the one whose words we are hearing this morning. Jesus is the king of the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no one like him. And that's his message. If you want, that's actually the gospel at its heart. That's what the gospel is about. That all authority has been given to him. He's the king. That's not what we usually think the gospel is about. Naturally, I'm kind of like, oh, this, this news about Jesus, it's great. It's about me and how I can come back into relationship with God. It's about my salvation and that God can love me and God's awesome. And those things are true. But the New Testament says that the gospel is primarily about the identity of Jesus. It's about who he is. Not about what to do. It's like, have you seen him? You can't just poke him all your life and expect there to be no consequences. You can't live just graffitiing the world and going, I don't care, you're some pussycat. He's the creator of the universe. He's all authority has been given to him. It's like going up to the queen and poking her in the eye. How long do you reckon that's going to last for? Probably not even going to get in the room. The New Testament says the gospel is primarily about the identity of Jesus, the authority of him, the kingship of him. Get him right and the rest follows. Now listen to Paul talking to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, the Savior King. That's what those two words mean. Raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. You're like, whoa. What I'd reduce the gospel to. What are the key parts of this? Jesus, the Messiah. His Messiah means promised king. Raised from the dead. King over death, over everything. There is nothing that is over him. He is, he's beaten it all. Descended from David. What's that got to do with it? David was the king. The king after God's own heart. The king that would lead God's people. The king who God said in, in 2 Samuel 7 that his son The son of David would rule on the throne forever. He wasn't talking about Solomon. Solomon died. He was talking about Jesus. David's son who would rule forever. Rule, king, authority. This is my gospel. It might not be the gospel you first heard when you became a Christian or what you think about when you hear what what Christians talk about, but it's a much greater one. As you get Jesus right, everything else fits in. He is king. Before it's about you, it's about him. This king calls everyone everywhere to treat him as he is. King of the universe. He's king over me, over you, over our neighbors, over our country, over all. There's not a a culture or an ethnic group or a society or a religion or a language or a landmass where Jesus does not have the right to be worshipped. For he is the king. Well, while the gospel is first and foremost about the kingship of Jesus, 
It has massive implications and an amazing effect on us. What are the implications of Jesus being the king, having all authority? While the identity of Jesus is to be feared, his work on the cross extinguishes that fear for us. The fear of knowing we've been poking the God of the universe in the eye all our lives is extinguished because the penalty has been paid. This king loves his people. This king saves his people. I've been reading a little bit from uh, the life of William Booth. He's He's one of the founders of the Salvation Army, the guy that kind of kicked them off. And he tells this story. On one of my recent journeys, as I gazed from the coach window, I was led to think about the condition of the multitudes around me, living carelessly in the most open and shameless rebellion against God without a thought for their eternal welfare. As I looked out of the window, I seemed to see them all, millions of people all around me, given up to their drink and the pleasures and their dancing and their music and their business and their anxieties, their politics, their troubles. And while my mind was thus engaged, I had a a vision, a picture. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. And over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled, while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed and towered and broke, only to rise and foam and tower and break again. In that ocean... I thought I saw a myriad upon myriad of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning as they cursed and screamed. They rose and shrieked again and cursed and screamed some more and then some sank to rise no more. That's a picture of us. Sure, it's just a picture he had in his mind. It's not the Bible. But it's a a great description of me, what I'm naturally like, being tossed back and forward by life, thinking I'm owning it, wanting to live my way and and putting myself as as the center with really not crying out for help, trusting myself, like I can swim, I'm fine. It's you, it's it's us, it's, it's what we were like before we were plucked out. It's what you were like before Jesus saved you. It's what you still might be like. People in rebellion to the true and living God, while being up and down on the waters of life, not knowing that death lurks beneath, thinking the world's fine, this is just how it happens. But Jesus comes like a lifeboat. And rescues his people. He comes into our world, into our mess, amongst the sea of kind of rebellion and anger, and goes to a cross where he dies in our place. He takes the penalty for our rebellion, our cursing God, our our putting ourselves at the center and just poking God in the eye and thinking we set the rules. He takes the outcome of that for us when he dies in our place. And does a swap. His life for ours. He takes the penalty that we deserved. He gets the rap for poking the king in the face. He faces the punishment. 
so we can stand like he was perfect. He rescues us from sin himself. The one who will be given all authority and power over heaven and earth and all things comes and takes the penalty for us. Listen to how Booth describes becoming a Christian. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock I saw a vast platform. And onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. See, the content of the gospel we have is the great majestic Jesus with all authority over heaven and earth offering forgiveness. Standing as king, offering you life with God, a safe haven, a place that's already been punished for you. It's the good news of rescue for drowning people. The gospel has amazing implications for us. Amazing implications. That the king came to save. Well, what does this one with all authority say? What does the one who could do whatever he wanted say? Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. While the content of the gospel is the kingship of Jesus, the extent of the gospel The extent of this news must match its content. Jesus has all authority over everything. And this authority is to be spread, is to be shared with all people everywhere. Every every corner of this earth. And if we find life on Mars or some other planet, Christians should be going there as well. To tell people about Jesus. If there are people, they need to put Jesus as their king. So Jesus commands these 12 friends of his Afraid, scared, what will we do? The one who has all authority in heaven and earth says, go, make disciples, make followers, make people who put me as their king. Spread this kingdom. How does he do it? Through some amazing attack force, some nuclear bomb of love that lets off and little kind of hearts flutter down and everyone's like, oh, this is great. You know, how, how does it happen? The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth says, you 11, just start talking. That's it. Like, why wouldn't, why, this is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. It seems incredibly feeble and weak to me to use these 11 who've all just denied you. They've all kind of gone, oh, I don't know if we can do this. Who have said, no, I don't know, Jesus. To say you are the future of my kingdom. It seems incredibly feeble and weak until you see who's saying it. And that he is with them. Share the news of the king, says the king himself. This is the way I want to see this message go out. This is the way I want to reach down and pull people out of that ocean of death and into life. 
This is, this is what I'm about. This is what changed heaven's song in Revelation 4 and 5. That the blood of Jesus' death on the cross for us meant that the world changed who they were singing about from just God, God and God the Father to God and His Son, the Lamb. The detail was filled in more. It's not worshipping a different God. It's the same God. But it's specific plans of what Jesus has done, His death in our place. Were these 11 afraid? You bet. (laughs) But the one who holds the universe in his hand chose them. The one who holds the universe in his hand chose you who trust in Jesus. He holds you. All authority. And he says, go. Make followers. Make disciples of all nations. That's his plan. That's his purpose. See, Christianity must be an evangelizing religion. It must be. It can never be a private religion because Jesus isn't a private Lord. He's not a private authority. Oh, he's just my authority. No, no, no. He says to every single person out there, I am your king. I don't care whether you're Muslim, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're Hindu, whether what you believe, it doesn't matter. It's like saying, I don't believe gravity exists. You can think that. It's not for too long. He is the Lord of the universe. And so the news has got to go out to his world. That's the position he's put us in, this great privilege. Have you seen how amazing he is and what he's done for us? The rescue has got to go out to the drowning souls. And you notice, Jesus doesn't just want people to say, oh yeah, I'm kind of into the kingdom. I'm kind of with you. He wants people 100% in baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's that talking about? Well, baptism, it really just means immersion. It's saying you are immersed in God. You've seen who he is. He is your life. You've been washed and cleansed by his death on the cross. You've you've put him in the position of your life as Lord. His death was your death. His resurrection can be applied to you. Everything that you rely on relies on him. I'm so immersed in Christ. But it's like I've, I've been reborn. I've gone into death and come back out clean because of what Jesus has done. So he says, baptize people. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're not baptized, you, you know, you're not a Christian. Baptism is a, is a symbol of what's really going on, that you're in Christ, right? It doesn't make you a Christian any more than putting a wedding ring on or off makes you married. It's like, oh, I'm not married now. Quick, put it back on. Whew, married again. Like, and if you guys put this wedding ring on, does that mean you're married to Sarah? Like, well, no, it's, it's a symbol, right? It's, it symbolizes a relational um, aspect between Sarah and myself that we're married. We, we've committed to one another. Now, you can be married and not wear a wedding ring. You, know, you can forget it one day, and that's fine. If you're living your life for ages and like, I don't want to wear a wedding ring, I'd be like, why? You, know, is that you don't want to seem like you're married. You don't want to make that statement to the public. You don't want to wear that symbol. Now, there might be good reasons. Like a friend of mine doesn't wear a, a wedding ring at work because he's an electrician, and he can get zapped. Pretty <laughs> wedding ring on, it's like yo. Um, so there's, but he puts it back on again as soon as he's left work. Um, similarly, baptism is something that we should actually obey God in, not in order to be saved, but because He's saved us. It's a symbol to the world to say, "I trust in Jesus." Is it kind of a bit embarrassing? Yeah, in some ways. But it's saying, I'm so in him that there's, <laughs> there's nothing else that matters to me. 
He's the king of the universe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And I'm in his kingdom. I'm with him. Have you seen him? If you haven't been baptized, we'd love you to come and chat with us. To write down your, your connect card. Hey, I'd love to talk about baptism with you. Um, I think it's a great way as a symbol to say, this is what matters to me. Uh, we, we'd love to see that happen. But don't for one second think that if you're baptized, you are a Christian automatically. Or that if you're not baptized, you can't be a Christian. They're symbols. So what are the implications then of the authority of Jesus for us, uh, for this church? Firstly, I think it's easy to say, I get that that's your plan. God, I get that you want to see people come to know you and, and trust in Jesus. And it's just not my plan. <laughs> it's kind of easy to go, you know, I've got stuff to do. I've got work to get on with. I've got family to love. I've got computer games to finish. There's a whole heap of things that we kind of put there and say, this is, this is, this is what I'm kind of on about. Some of them are good and important things. Some of them are fine. They're, it's, all fine. it's fine to play computer games. It's right to love your family. It's right to do good work and be involved in the world. But that never, ever shirks our responsibility of speaking of the God who has all authority in heaven and earth, of sharing the news, of, of, of saying to those who are sinking around us, come and see Jesus. Not just like, oh, I guess, if they ask. <laughs> they're sinking. They're, they're doing stuff. They're going down. And, and what am I? Oh, you could get on if you want. You know, <laughs> they're going to die. We can't flick past our responsibility to others. We can't look around the church and go, oh, that's everyone else in church's job. That's the, the guy out the front's job. Yeah, it is my job because I'm a Christian. It's all our jobs to be sharing. Now, to some, there's given the gift of evangelism. Some are especially kind of driven. that They want to talk to anything that moves about Jesus. And you, those people are wonderful. We want to free them up to, to go talk to as many people as you can and invite them along to church, invite them to read the Bible. But they're the kind of out there. And that's great. But we're all called to be sharing this news, to make disciple-making disciples of all nations. See, Jesus' command wasn't directly to us. We went there in that room. We weren't part of that 11 whom he said, go and make disciples of all nations. But we are part of the nations that are, make, that are to make disciples of all nations. So the command was to them to make disciples, and we're part of that now. And so we have heard from them as they keep writing the word. They keep taking the message out. This is how William Booth finishes his kind of description of this vision that he saw. Um, he says, On looking more closely, I found a number of those who'd been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders and ropes and boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequence, in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know what gladdened me the most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks and reaching a place of safety. Or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. Friends, that's what we are as a church. A lifeboat in Auckland. A big ship that is sent out amongst the world each week, not just as a church, but individually, to say to people, get on, see Jesus. Come and, and recognize who he is. Put him first. See him as the king of the universe. 
the rest of Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 8, uh, it's on the screen. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. What's the rest? For which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word's not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. How great it would be to see this city have Jesus as their king. Can you imagine that? Last year, the census that came out uh, said that Auckland has 1.415 million people in it. In the last 10 years, Auckland grew by 111,000 people, 11,000 a year on average. If we as Christians are just going to try to keep up with population growth and just say we're happy to see just 5% of the population in great Bible teaching churches, that means we need to start five new churches a year and have those churches grow to 100 in that year and start another five the next year and the next year and the next year. For 10 years, this is just, just to keep up with population growth. So I want to put before you a challenge as a church, and it's a little bit out there. I would love us as a church to be praying that 10% of this city would come to know Jesus. 150,000 people. Imagine what it would be like if we actually asked God to do that. To see um, people come and trust him. Why 150,000? Because it's a start. (laughs) Only 10%, but... It's a real start because once you start to see 10% of a a population believe in Jesus, it's not some small minority group. It's it's a serious force to be reckoned with. And the whole dynamic of how that works changes. But imagine it. You're on the bus. One in 10 trust Jesus. One in 10 live for him. You're walking down the street and something goes on and one in 10 people, because they follow Jesus, go out of their way to to save someone. One in 10 people... uh, so desire that people come to see Jesus for who he is, that they're living with all their being to see them in their job, in their work, in in their studies and whatever they're doing, looking after their kids and their family to see people trust in him. Imagine a society like that. Can we really do it? No. But God can. Remember Nineveh? A whole city, 120,000. All of them repented. 100% of that city repented. God is in control of everything. Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. All he says is, go, make disciples, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. His word is good. His control is great. Let's trust him. Imagine what we'd be like if we actually prayed every day that 150,000 people would come to know Jesus. Not just kind of as a chant, as a mantra, but that that would align our thinking. We long for the God who controls all things to do it. Imagine the decisions I'd make in my life. Imagine what I'd be thinking about that matters. Can he do it? Yes. He's done it with so many of you and with me, hasn't he? He brought us from death to life. He brought us out of the, the pit, out of the sea and saved us. It's not a goal, it's a prayer. I'm not saying we should set it and strive for it. I think we should be praying that God, that we'd have a heart like God's heart. 
to see those who are sinking come to know Jesus. Now, I've been thinking about us as a church, what kind of goal should we be thinking about? I reckon we as a church should be praying for and asking God to double us each year. To see double the amount of people come along. Not just people coming from uh, other churches doing church swap and kind of, but people coming from death to life who haven't seen Jesus before, understanding that he is this person. Imagine if we kept praying for that. That would be morning church at 180 people with kids. Uni church at 160 people by the end of next year. Would it be uncomfortable? Maybe. Won't it get too big? Yep, could be crowded on the lifeboat. But we are a life-saving vessel. We're a battleship sent out amongst a war with people fighting to say, get on. We're not a four-person powerboat like in the James Bond movies where we sit back with those wooden kind of things and it's little and like, I'm right, just cruising around. Hey, how you going? Can you, oh, I just can't imagine doing that. Seeing someone sinking in the middle of the ocean and being like, nice day. Yet I do it. It pushes me to pray. It pushes me to go, Lord God, if you can use me, you can use me. Use me in any way you see to see people come to know you. Give me an opportunity in this taxi trip or on this bus ride. As I talk to my hairdresser, uh, give me an opportunity just to, just to talk of how amazing you are. Let it come up somehow. I don't know. And give me words to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't have some planned speech I can pull out of my pocket. But help, help me, God, to just point to you. Use me. Praying like that, helping, asking God to change us, is well, it's costly. It means a shift of mind. But it's an aligning of our hearts with God's heart. Throughout January, we're going to run a, a new thing called a summer of barbecues. Sounds great, I think. Summer of barbecues. The aim is uh, for every person in this church um, to be praying for opportunities for five people to invite them along and to run 10 barbecues throughout January and February. I'm going to challenge church to say, just put on 10 barbecues, invite your neighbors around. Maybe as a connect group, put one on, invite your friends. and just The idea is not to kind of be like, right, come along now, we're going to sit you down and, and preach at you. The idea is to invite people and just share life together, but praying for opportunities to speak of who Jesus is. Using that time to do that, asking God to bring these people along to him, to explaining Christianity, to church. We want to run this summer of barbecues. Imagine how many barbecues we could do if every household was doing five to ten barbecues in those two months. Just once a week. Now everyone's got heaps of time in January. Everyone's like, yeah, I'll come around for a barbecue. Why not? Let's go. And we're praying that God would change people and we're praying that we'd actually make real connection with people and love them and care for them. What a privilege we have to be called God's mouthpiece, to be his life-saving vessels, that the one who has all authority in heaven and earth would use us. Well, friends, that's the privilege we have, serving Jesus with all our might that those around might come to know him and trust in him. They're the orders for the one who is the creator of all things. And that's our privilege. So don't we pray together that God would use us to see more and more people come to know him. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed at the authority of your son. And at the same time amazed at his 
closeness to us, that, that we can hear you speak and that we have seen what Jesus has done with us in mind and for your glory's sake. Father, we ask that you would make that ever so real to us. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment, as we remember with that symbol of um, what Jesus has done for us, that you could make it so true and so real and propel us out in this world to be your lifeboats, to be your mouthpiece, to be used by you to see people come to know you and experience the joy of forgiveness and life with the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Father, for those of us here today who have not yet put their trust in Jesus, who do not yet call him their Lord, please uh, help them to, to take you seriously, to see that the dangers that are there and to look hard and honestly at the evidence that exists for who you are and what you've done. Father, reveal yourself to them so they might experience too the joy that you've revealed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.